2: Hi everyone, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in Sydney in the 80s. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home.
1: But this season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there.
2: From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history.
1: Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. I'm Paul Verhoeven and I'm very ill, as you can hear, but we're soldiering on regardless. Dad, today's case is one that I wasn't even aware of, but its importance in the annals of Australian true crime history cannot be overstated. And it really starts with something that's a bit of a horror story, frankly. Now, I found a clipping from The Herald Sun uh, back when this actually happened in the 60s. I'm going to read you this small clipping and tell me if you think this is brutally irresponsible. Now, it is the lottery results, right? Hmm. And it says, First place, £100,000, three nine three two. Self B. Thorne, 79 Edward Street, Bondi. So, it gives the name and the address. Mm. Not the full name, an initial. But it gives mm. the address of the winner of a of £100,000. Now, that's... I, I looked into this. I think that's a couple of mil in modern mm. terms. Well,
2: Paul, um, back in 1960. Yeah. It's a, a wonderful year. Mm-hmm. In that I was born in that year. Oh, well, you know, for that reason alone, it's noteworthy. However, in Sydney... Mm-hmm. The average price of a house, and we're talking Bondi, which yeah. now is unbelievably expensive, mm-hmm. was £8,000. So we're talking you could have bought the equivalent of more, maybe 12 houses. Yeah. It's a lot of money.
1: It's a yeah. lot of money to advertise as, first of all, Dad. That- I know it changed after this for mm. reasons that will become apparent. For those mm. of you who don't know this case, I didn't know about this case. But it's one of those horror stories where Tegan and I have fantasized about winning the lottery quite regularly. And we have two little um, sort of exercises we do, little thought exercises. Mm. One, we decide what we're going to do with the money. Uh, and am, like, I, am I at the top of the list? You are on the list, yes. On a list? You're, no, you're you're top of the list, Dad. There's a, well, you're, okay. on, you're on the second list for reasons that will become very apparent, okay? Yeah. So the first thing is what we decide what we're going to do with the money. And typically it's it's um, long-term investment stuff. You know, there's a couple of people very close to us who we would lavish with gifts and give money to and pay off all their debts and just send them around the world and buy them amazing cars and blah, 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 right? But the second question is we decide who it's safe to tell. Now, not just because we're worried people will come and kidnap us, although um, that's not really something I ever think about, but primarily because we don't want people treating us differently and the only people i can think who wouldn't treat us differently are both sets of parents and a couple of siblings right you really you wouldn't tell friends i mean this is tell me if you think this is silly we've decided that we if we do win a lot of money i mean you know the 50 million million dollar jackpot the most we will admit to friends is that we won a million right Mm. Uh, which which would explain from the outside why you're, you know, suddenly spending a bit more money and going on trips and it'll be believable and then you can give them something proportionate to a million dollars, but then you won't have a uh, situation like this happening because mm. word won't get out. What
2: would you do if you won uh, the lottery, Dad? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, I'd like to quote Paul Hogan, okay, who once at a press conference Said that's not a knife. This is a knife. No, no, that was he said that in the movie, not in the press conference. But that oh, was, sorry. but that was funny though. Um, no, <laughs> what a what a Vulcan way to acknowledge comedy. But go on, gonna, well, that's go that's, on. that's a compliment. Um, <laughs> but someone said to him from the press gallery, "Yeah, Mister Hogan, what could be better than being rich and famous?" To which he replied, "Rich and anonymous." Yeah, and anonymity is something to be treasured. Yeah, but you used to have anonymity. You don't anymore. I, I get stopped. I was crossing a pedestrian crossing. Did I tell you the story? Did we tell our listeners? And I'm so... I don't want to sound crazy here, but I'm quite used to getting stopped in the street, and there was a lady walking toward me on the pedestrian crossing, and I she sort of was looking at me, and she was waving, and I mentally prepared myself, to. and she just walked straight past me. She was waving to someone behind me. You didn't <laughs> tell so, me no, you didn't was, tell me that. That's okay. great. That's that was really weird. Great. And I then sort of had to give myself an uppercut and say, John, come back to Earth. You're not, not everyone. And when people sort of look at me in the city uh, longer than normal, I um, and I said to Christine, do you think people are actually staring at me? And she, of course, she rolls her eyes into the back of her head like a scene out of The Exorcist, which is a nice way of saying don't be foolish, John. Yeah, but um, look,
1: let's, let's say, for example, you won a lot of money, mm-hmm. just what, I mean, what would you okay. just very very quickly? What would, okay. What well, do
2: firstly, that? on the balance of probabilities, it's not going to happen. Okay. But if I, if I did win a lot of money, I would get friends and family mm-hmm. around at a, I guess I'd hire a, a venue. And I would attach an envelope to the underside of every single chair. huh. And there'd be, I would read out, I might even get a lawyer in to read out um, the the rules of the game. The rules are.
1: Wait, there's a game? Oh, this is like Saw. Please continue.
2: The rules of the game you can you can tell I've thought about this long and hard, which is uh-huh. kind of sad. Um, attached to everyone's underside of the seat would be an envelope. The rules are under no circumstances are they to, to disclose to anyone else friend or family ever what was in the envelope secondly they can't come back and ask for more they're the two rules do with it what you want
1: but everyone's sitting together are they not going to compare who got more? they can't
2: that's the paul that's one of that's that's rule number one You can't stop them though okay <laughs>
1: Good point. Do you see the dilemma here? You can't just stop someone. Okay, then in that
2: case, I'll give everyone the same amount of money. Oh, no, you can't do that. Um, I think it's... Look, it's a very complex topic, Paul. And... What do you want is what I'm saying.
1: mm, I think an extremely nice house and a very nice car and a bunch of other stuff. But let's say, for example, that you won $50 million. Or let's say you won $3 million or $5 million or whatever. And let's say it happened when I was a little kid and you opened up the Herald Sun. For some reason. Mm. And in it it said, uh, you know, three million dollars, uh Jay Verhoven, and then it gave our address.
2: Appalling. I'd be that'd be just irresponsible. And there lies the problem and the crux of this entire story. But just a an aside and a prequel to this story that occurred in nineteen sixty, yeah. What we need to remember, listeners, and for those that don't live in Sydney or for that matter, Australia, for those of our friends. Um, in other locations on this planet, mm-hmm. and possibly other planets, um, the Sydney Opera House, which is which was built and well basically designed by Jørn Utzon, uh, it was an international competition. He won, and the budget blew out, and the the government of the day, the state government, began to literally shit their little panties and think to themselves, we're basically, we're rooted, we've we've overcommitted, we've created this, this monster. And they decided to come up with what was called the Opera House Lottery. First prize being 100,000 pounds. And they had numerous lotteries and they were very successful and you know they're obviously highly subscribed and they made the state government a lot of money which the funds then went into the completion of the new south wales sydney opera house which is an iconic building both yep. here and internationally yep. slight problem as you said in the intro <clears throat> the 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 people that won it on this occasion their their details were were given out and everyone in everyone just knew that you know that's uh, that was the family and they they knew where they lived and they is the genesis of a tragic tragic story. Can I where, Yep, yep.
1: Can I read you? Cuz I found a clipping from the Sydney Morning Herald July the 8th, 1960. So, we're not going to reveal exactly what happens, but this is the actual for this for many people this was their first encounter culturally with the story as it broke. 25,000 pound demand for boy. Statewide hunt for kidnapper. The whole of New South Wales was alerted last night in the search for the kidnapper of Graham Thorne, eight-and-a-half-year-old son of a recent £100,000 lottery winner. So right away you can see what happened. Mm -hmm. The kidnapper, speaking with a foreign accent, telephoned the boys home yesterday morning and demanded £25,000 for his safe return. While the search went on relentlessly, the father Basil Thorne, that's the B-thorn in the clipping from the start of the episode, made a heartbroken appeal, for God's sake, send him back in one piece. The distraught mother, now under sedation by the family doctor, said, even if we have to pay out the £100,000, we shall do so to get back our boy. The boy disappeared yesterday morning while on his way to Scott's College from his home in Bondi. The news of the kidnapping, the first of a child made for money in the history of Australia, now that was something I didn't know until I checked out the story, Mm. shocked the public. The commissioner of police, Mr. C.J. Delaney, made a personal radio appeal for the safe return of the child and full public cooperation with the police. Dad, they published in the paper the picture of Graham Thorne. Uh, They had pictures of the grieving parents of Thorne family. And, uh, I mean, what what actually happened here?
2: Mm. Well, look, you have to go back in time a couple of weeks. So the detectives that were investigating the case... On a roundabout, the fourteenth of June, yeah, which is three weeks prior to the boy's disappearance, a man called at the Thorns flat. Okay, during the early evening, uh-huh. and he he knocks on the door, and, and Mrs. Thorne comes to the door, and he says, "Oh, look, I'm after Mr. Bogner," and the 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 missing boy's, you know, in the future mother, mm-hmm. says that she doesn't know anyone by that name and then he says apparently this person has or she says look maybe someone was just here before because we've just moved into this particular flat and maybe it was the people before and their name was bailey and then he she says to him look you know is it possible that you know mr bailey's the person you're looking for and this is when it gets really creepy the guy at the door he then pulls out a small notebook and he says to the mum of Graeme Thorne, Graham's still alive at this point, obviously. Oh, and also
1: this is after the announcement of the paper, isn't it? Correct, correct.
2: So, So, you know, this person knows where they live, and this is when it gets really creepy. This guy, this guy who, might I say, had a foreign accent, which becomes quite pertinent in this particular case, he pulls out this little notebook, and he says to Mrs Thorne, and I'm quoting here, is the telephone number here, 307113? And she looks at him in horror and says, yes, that's our number, but it hasn't been connected yet. It's a brand new number. And it's been issued by the exchange, which is what used to happen in the 60s and 70s in Sydney and no doubt lots and lots of other places.
1: So how did you make calls? Did you call up at the operator and give no, you, the extension? or No,
2: you just couldn't do anything. You just had a dead a deadline right. and you had to wait for a, back then it was the PMG. They'd come out and they'd, they'd connect it or they'd connect it at the exchange. But this particular person already knew the home number. How? Well, there's, there's there are various theories around it that he may have had a contact within the PMG. And she was really, really kind of upset. This guy knows the family's new number that is not yet connected. And then he says to her, I'm I'm a private inquiry agent, and he says something weird. He says this is a husband and wife affair, and then Mrs. Thorne suggests to this guy, "Look," and she's obviously a bit sort of discombobulated, and she says to him, "Look, why don't you go upstairs and speak to a Mrs. Lord, okay, who's the upstairs tenant, and she's been there a long, long time, and maybe you know she can assist you." Now, this guy who's knocking at the door. He's really really shrewd. He leaves her apartment and instead of just pissing off, he's thinking maybe she's looking, watching me, listening. So he goes upstairs and he speaks to this woman that really has nothing to do with anything, but he's this is all part of of the, of the sort of sort of creating a sense of of sort of reality, particularly with Mrs. Thorne. And what happened was obviously the lady upstairs says, "Look, Basically, I don't know what you're talking about, and then and then you know, the guy leaves. Yeah. But at the time, on the morning of the kidnapping, the the vehicle, which was a 1955 Ford Custom Line, it's a it's a pretty sexy light blue car, right. and this car was parked at the intersection of Francis and Wellington Streets, Bondi. And what it was, they'd parked in such a way that when people were walking past, they actually had to sort of go round the car. So it was in a very, very prominent position. Which means in 1960, in Bondi, this type of car parked in a pretty awkward spot where people actually have to sort of move around it. You are clearly going to get witnesses that can describe the occupants because people are, you know, pretty switched on. Yeah. And. What happens then is that a squad of detectives, it's so fascinating, are um, are involved. But what we need to do, Paul, is that we need to um, remember that this particular guy, that he had been casing the joint, he knew where they lived, he actually, and this is quite creepy, for some weeks he actually would watch Graham, the young boy, walk with uh a neighbor and another kid and he'd go to this particular location and there he'd be picked up and he would be driven to his school and then on that fateful morning when young graham says goodbye to his parents well actually the dad i think was away at that time he walks up to where the family that take him to school will be waiting but Instead, the occupant of this blue car, the 1955 Ford Custom Line, is waiting. And he comes up with a story and says, look, the other people that normally pick up, because he's been watching the whole scene, he knows exactly how to talk to the boy, and he, he gets the boy in the car, but he doesn't drive him to to school. He takes him across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and they stop at North Sydney. And the offender gets out of the car, and then he he's got the, the home number. By this time, that there that number that he had written down in his book is has now been connected to the Thorns family home in Bondi. He calls. So, yeah, yep. he's he's going to call and make a make a uh, ransom demand. Correct right? for twenty five thousand yeah, okay. pounds. Problem yeah. is that a police mm-hmm. officer from Bondi, a sergeant. He picks the phone up. Well, well, firstly, the mother picks up, and then obviously she's completely distressed. This guy is saying certain things, and then this police officer grabs the phone, and what does he do? He pretends to be Graham's father, and a conversation ensues. And the the offender says, and this is quite a famous part of the story and quite creepy, particularly bearing in mind the location of Bondi, the beaches, etc. Is that he says. To the mother of Graham, he says, "If you don't give me the money, I will throw your son to the sharks." Which is quite an ominous threat. And then one of the big problems with this case is that later on that night, he calls again, and this is one of the big fuck ups of the, in terms of the police, that it was. I I don't quite understand. We you know what what went on in the house, but there were there were police there, and the the kidnapper calls the family home again. Another police officer picks the phone up, but guess what, Paul? It's another. It's it's not the same police officer that pretended to be the dad in the morning. So the police officer in the evening, around 9 p.m., picks up the phone and he pretends to be the father. And it's at that point that the offender knew that the police were involved. Right. And, of course, that's when things went awry and they, um, and the boy was, uh, well, he was found um, a few weeks later.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: And he was wrapped up in a blanket. Do you know this part of the story?
1: Yeah, he was found uh, by a bunch of children, three children in Seaforth.
2: Yes, and that's an area we know well. I went to TAFE there, actually. Correct. And you know the Waycoast Parkway? I do, yes. Okay, very, very... Well, Paul, we did a bloody ghost story from that very road. It's probably fortuitous yeah. that we weren't talking. And weirdly, uh, when that ball went off, remember the ball? It was actually very close to the location where Graham Thorne's school bag and some of his things were found. Mm. And um, they examined the, the he was very, very badly um, very badly decomposed. Um, Would you like me to read some of the autopsy report?
1: Uh, Yeah, I guess guess that's important.
2: We'll just touch on it. So the autopsy Mm. showed that Graham's body was in an advanced state of decomposition. There was a patch of abrasions on the right side of the neck, a wound to the back of the head on the left side with an underlying fracture to the back of the skull and some bruising of the scalp. The lungs and upper air passages showed scattered surface hemorrhaging. The stomach was empty. The organs showed no disease death was caused by the head injury or asphyxia or a combination of both now paul the offender do you know what he then did
1: i would look i'm guessing he pretended the kid was still
2: alive so as to get the ransom money well before he did that he gets his family and they leave australia oh shit okay they hop on a boat so he's got kids of his own. Yes, two, two from. Um, he'd had a series of relationships, and without sort of jumping the gun, you know, ostensibly the the motive behind this entire thing was was a financial motive, right. uh, to sort of get himself out of a, the mire of of debt, and it's a, it's a tragic story. But he mm. hops on a boat, and they're heading to Colombo. Oh, the name of one of your favorite TV shows. Mm-hmm. And the police, they, they get some incredible, amazing information. They, the boy, Graham, was wrapped in a blanket. Now, that blanket was made by a company in Melbourne called Onkaparinga. Mm-hmm. And the Onkaparinga Blanket Company, they numbered all their blankets. And this blanket was numbered, and they were able to trace the purchaser of the blanket... And it was actually a relative of the offender's wife. Is that incredible?
1: And I believe it also had um, little bits of uh, pink limestone mortar, mm. and that had them think that Thinking, maybe the body had been stored under a house. Stored right? under a
2: house, also yep. very, very good, Paul. But but one of them, and this is where it becomes one of the most fascinating, uh, I guess, murder mysteries that was solved in Australian true crime, mm. and that is that they found two unusual plant, you know, leaves, yeah. material from leaves that were, you know, so they got sort of botanists involved and they started to think this is quite unusual to have this combination of two types of trees. But they also found dyed blonde hair in the blanket and they found the hair from a Piccanese dog.
1: So that's a lot of that's a lot of evidence. A lot
2: that? of very strong circumstantial evidence and bloody good police work. Mm. Uh, Seems like a, a level of
1: complex forensics for that era. I don't mean to diminish their achievement, but that's incredible. For no, the it's, 60s. it's
2: just wonderful. And then they found out that the hair that was blonde was yep. actually dyed. Then they found out that the offender's wife or partner mm. had dyed blonde hair. Their family owned a Pekinese dog. The relative had bought the particular number numbered Onkaparinga blanket. Mm-hmm. But then, and this is kind of buried in some of the more obscure detail, and it's quite exciting, and that is that the media became very involved. They were trying to track down the name of this particular tree or even a, a like a house that had two trees. And wouldn't you believe it, uh, a postman who used to deliver to the offender's house they rented in Seaforth. He recalled the driveway. He recalled that combination of two trees in the driveway.
1: They were cypress trees, weren't they?
2: Yes. Yeah. And they began to get the most extraordinary circumstantial case against the offender. So he was.
1: His name was Stephen Bradley.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah. he had had it changed to Deedpole. He had a uh, sort of a, a middle. Uh, what do we call it? Like a central, um, you know. He was Hungarian, wasn't he? E- Eastern you know European name he had. And, um, but they they went to a flat in Manly. Good police work here. They found a roll of 35 millimeter negatives. Mm-hmm. And these, this roll of negatives actually um, was, get ready for this. It was in the in the in the, in the flat, in the, like in the garden of this flat in Manly, and the roll had been torn up and discarded. But they managed to salvage pieces of this sort of torn up, um, you know, film roll. Okay, uh-huh. it looked as though it had been thrown out from a window into the garden. It had lodged behind some shrubs. It's so fascinating. They 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 printed the negatives and they actually find a photograph of. One of their children, as a baby, sitting on the Onkaparinga rug. Isn't that amazing? Huh. It's just so fascinating.
1: The, um, so, Stephen Bradley's house was, well, the family home that they were at with the cypress trees was in Klontaf. Hmm. But at that point, this must have been some pretty lightning quick uh, police That's work. But what happened next was, and this is incredible to me, uh, he's on this cruise, hmm. right? He's on a p liner called the Himalaya. Yep. And he's there with his wife and his kids. And he, like you said, he gets arrested when he gets to shore in October. Mm. So while he's on this cruise, the police work is moving at such a clip that they actually had time to build a case and have authorities waiting for him when he got off the, the liner.
2: Yeah. And the two detectives, they flew yeah. to Colombo. Amazing. They then, they've got all the extradition papers that, that have to have a very, very, they would have had to have convinced a judge that there were reasonable grounds and and, and a very good chance of a, uh, you know, a positive uh, prosecution. Yeah. They then fly him back to Sydney and on the flight, he makes certain admissions, Mm -hmm. um, which I find intriguing, bearing in mind, or with what I know about, you know, how the police probably back more so then used to, you know, occasionally slip a verbal in. But apparently he completely unraveled and admitted everything. And I've actually re read his statement, which is quite um he was he was somewhat illiterate, but you, you do get the gist of, of what he did. But his defence do you know what his defence was? No. It was that the boy asphyxiated.
1: So he he's not the only one to believe this actually. So Mark Tadeshi, who was one of the prosecutors, I think he was the prosecutor in the um in the uh Belangolo killings. Yep. Right, so he wrote a book a couple of years back where he asserts that basically what happens is he wraps him in the blanket, binds him up, puts him in the trunk, and then when he gets to kind of check on the kid, uh, he's asphyxiated. Mm, right? That's, yeah, yeah.
2: But they do. You,
1: do you do you put any stock in that theory?
2: Well, he he was found with a gag in his mouth. Yeah, but you can ostensibly still breathe through your nose. But what the police did. Okay, this is this is going to sound so weird and almost paranormal, listeners. But they actually got a a. I'm not sure whether it was a police officer or a scientist. They sealed. Well, didn't seal it. But they sort of shut the boot. They put a oh, like a a tube into the into the into the space uh-huh. where Graham would have been, you know, wrapped up and kept. And this uh, this person sucked on the tube. Get ready for this yeah. for seven hours. And during that seven hours, they continually took samples and they were measuring carbon dioxide and oxygen levels. And the the levels fell so little in that seven hour period that they actually proved beyond a reasonable doubt that that lack of oxygen was not a, a cause, causal factor in, in his death. And that neuro- is so... Isn't that amazing?
1: So interesting. It's, it's such thorough, thorough police work.
2: Thorough. Jesus Christ. And um, look, it's just, you know, then, of course, they had photographs. When they, Once they got Bradley, they then could show the photos of Bradley to the parents and the neighbours. Yeah. And they all went, yeah.
1: They went, that's the guy who was pretending to be a PI the other day. Correct.
2: Right. That's the man. And, yeah. you know, they could then recognise, because the police had also, the two the two dads, in inverted commas, they'd also spoken to him. So they then had a good sense of, you know, he, he, he had an accent, yeah. which is not sort of, that's not on its... By itself, you know, irrefutable, but it's no. All, I mean,
1: all. he's he, he's a former he was a former Hungarian, so he'd that's right, have that's a right. yeah.
2: Hungarian accent. Yeah, Bradley mm-hmm. was identified by numerous witnesses as the driver of the custom line sedan, which was parked at the intersection of Francis and Wellington Streets, Bondi, at eight twenty a.m. on the morning of the kidnapping. Okay, right, so every, it, everyone, it, everyone saw this. Down everyone it's, they've got the whole thing stitched up. Yeah. Now, on the. 20th to the 29th of March in 1961 yeah his trial was held at the Central Criminal Court in Sydney and it would have been a major i'm just looking at some of the photographs the throng of people every day mm. and bradley pleaded not guilty and because it was a murder charge and you know he, he look this is so interesting and this is this is problematic for me being an ex-new south wales police officer because he says that his confession was dictated to him by the police.
1: Which is a verbal,
2: right? It's a verbal. Yeah. And there were verbals when I was in the police force uh, back in the 80s, uh, regular. that they would have been many, many, many verbling yeah. sort of interviews occurring every single shift. Uh, and probably throughout Australia although New, New South Wales was notorious so that's kind of you know, you just don't know It's that's something between the two police and Bradley you know, he either completely just sort of gave up on the plane and just you know, just sort of couldn't cope sure. but um, you know, the court of um, look, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to penal servitude for life and he was you know, 34 at the time, right? He was, was 34, yeah. And that was the maximum penalty you could get in New South Wales for murder. Yeah. Okay. So what happened was he appealed, and the Court of Criminal Appeal unanimously dismissed Bradley's appeal on the 22nd of May, which is not that soon after the trial. And the 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 just Mr Justice Heron, he, Heron, he made this um, this comment. Okay, he said. I have been a judge now for over 20 years in this court and have listened constantly all my judicial life to attacks upon confessional statements made by persons accused of a crime and I doubt very much if I have ever met with a case in which the confession that was made here in Bradley's own handwriting is more convincing of its truth. So, Daddy,
1: he died in prison in his 40s. I think he had a heart attack while playing tennis. In his Mm. 40s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Goulburn Jail, I believe.
2: Yeah. And um, I guess the the take-home... Is it it the take-home of this story? Is that the phrase? The takeaway. The The takeaway of this particular story is Mm. about preserving the crime scene. Right. The the evidence. And and here's a little sort of aside to this particular story, and that is that um, some children, they came home... And they spoke to their mum and dad about this this terrible smell emanating from this rolled-up blanket. And when the, the family, you know, organised to get the police around, and the police sort of, you know, began to sort of I hate to use this this pun, but unravel this mm-hmm. particular this case, the children said to their parents, "Oh, mum and dad, no, this this the body in the blanket. We've seen it here for days." It had been there for days and the kids never said anything. Isn't that just so bizarre? So I guess a case in point also, and we've had this situation with the Belangolo situation where people have smelt a terrible smell and thought, I won't say anything, I I won't go closer. And it turns out occasionally that it is a human being or what's left of them. But you've got to be very, very careful as a member of the public when you approach something like that is to be very aware that it is possibly a crime scene. Mm. So, you know, the preservation of the crime scene is, is, is paramount.
1: So Graham Thorne is the name of the child who uh, passed away or was murdered, depending on your perspective. And he was buried in Macquarie Park. And uh, I don't think the family would ever recover from that. But That is an intense thing. And as a result of this happening, after this point... Uh, when you applied for the Sydney Opera House lottery ticket, you could tick a box that not um, for press NFP,
2: not, mm-hmm. and I think we were the first country in the world to have mm. NFP. And right. thank God. And yeah. I know that in America, look, anonymity—it's—it's it's a tough one over there. Everyone seems to, you know, I—it's a—it's a very very big burden to carry mm. if people yeah. know that you have come into extreme wealth. uh if, I, if that happened to me, I, I'd be sort of hot-footing it out of here. Yeah. Without a doubt. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, it was a tragic case, but a very strange one, and it did kind of set the course for you know, kidnappings and ransoms and the lottery in Australia moving forward. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, it's such an interesting story, and I'm so that's glad right. we got to delve into it. And uh, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. But fear not, we will be back later this week with a piping hot episode of Loose Ends, which is our spin-off podcast where we go off topic. And uh, it's often quite good. So make sure you tune in for that. Make sure you head across to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash loose units. And also make sure you get your bloody tickets to our second show in Melbourne. Uh, we're doing live shows again. If you've not been to a Loose Units live show, they are absolutely iconic. They're awesome. Dad gets lit, let off the leash and it's really weird and loose and fun. And the audience always has an incredible time. So we're looking to sell that show out. So make sure you go to the Comedy Republic's website and grab your tickets to the second show, which we added specifically because the first one sold out. Mm. Make sure you get that done. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And we we will see you later this week for Loose Ends. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen